0: Episode 46, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Diana Franklin
1: of the University of Chicago. Among other topics, the team discuss K 12 education in quantum, suspension of disbelief, and ways to communicate quantum topics to
0: broader audiences. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian.
1: Hey, Cyprian, how are you doing? Hi, Patrick. I'm doing well. Looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things today.
2: Oh, you're not going to be disappointed. as, as I don't think we we're very regularly disappointed, but we're joined by Diana. And, and Diana, can you introduce yourself to our audience before our conversation?
0: Yeah, my name is Diana Franklin, and I am a professor at University of Chicago. And my research area is computer science education, which includes quantum computing education. Because I've done quantum computer architecture in the past. And so now I've been able to bring my technical expertise and my educational expertise together for the first time. That's awesome. And I'm looking at how kids learn quantum computing concepts.
2: So I would say, and maybe Cyprian has a different view, I would say that is the reason we're doing this. We, 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 neither one of us has a business in quantum yet, uh, but we're both passionate about spreading the word. And there's no better way to do that than with the young but there's got to be super challenges. So what, what do you find are your challenges here?
0: Yeah, I think the, one of the biggest challenges is like, if you look at math, when we teach math to fifth graders, it's not just calculus really slowly. It's actually fundamentally what are the basic skills that are going to be necessary five years later when they get to calculus.
2: It builds upon itself.
0: That's right. And so quantum computing, teaching that to a seventh grader is going to look fundamentally different from doing it in college. And so what are those things? And so, you know, for example, um, in college, uh, the idea that measurement disturbs state, that was taught to me as this absolutely crazy, crazy idea. And we did this activity in discussion where we all thought of something, and then we would each give an attribute of it. And then once somebody gave an attribute of it, you had to then change what you were thinking in your mind to be something else that matched all the attributes that had come before. And so, and when I did that, that was sort of fun, but it really didn't teach me that measurement disturbed state because I didn't think of that as a measurement. And and the dumb thing is that measure, we, we have measurement disturbing state. If you have a child uh, crying and then you get out your cell phone to to video them they stop crying and they grin at you and do some you know some of them but it's like this idea that this that things that interact with the system change the system this is not crazy this is not non-intuitive and so that's what we're trying to do is take the things that were when i started doing quantum stuff were taught to me as like crazy unintuitive and you've never heard of this in your life
2: there are examples that you can have i I hadn't thought about those examples
0: yeah, exactly. So,
2: so is is that is it harder to teach the 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 teachers to teach it that way, or the students to understand it that way? It sounds like the teachers would be the obstacle.
0: Well, when we choose something like this, even the teachers are like, "Oh, of course," because Makes it sense. and it it also is better because it ties to what they're teaching already. It mm-hmm. ties to. Uh, s- normal science instead of quantum computing. I think the one of the big barriers is actually the aura around like, oh, I could never do quantum computing, mm. right? Quantum, uh, people think of quantum as something that only Einstein does. or And then computer science also has this aura around it of, of certain people can do it and certain people can't. And we're trying to dispel that by having activities that are so intuitive and so simple that people are like, oh, this is considered a precursor to quantum computing? Yeah. But I can do this. This this wasn't crazy.
2: This is so easy.
0: Yeah. 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 This makes sense. I could do this. And you know, only a small percentage of them will do it, but we want everyone to feel like it's a choice for them if they right. wanted to pursue it.
2: Right. Because they they won't become quantum scientists if they don't know about What's out there? Uh, One of the things I've taken as an approach with adults in teaching things, because I'm trying to teach about uh, quantum encryption and things that are, you know, in the security space, is I tell them, act like it's a Superman movie and just suspend disbelief for a little bit. And don't worry about why Superman can fly, because that's a long conversation. And just accept that superposition is a thing and entanglement's a thing. and, and, And then just get to the, like, why does it matter? And then if you want to fill in those blanks, you can take uh you can take the the run down the rabbit hole, as I call it.
0: Yeah, and I think I think a really good analogy for that is gravity. We don't actually know why gravity works. But we experience it every day, and so we believe it. And so then we make, we design things that use gravity to to our advantage. You know, and and people were doing that far before they had words for it, right? Water mills and and driving buffalo off of cliffs. And, you know, so so humanity has used gravity for thousands of years. Right. Uh, and we didn't need to understand it. And we still don't understand why gravity exists. And so I think it's important for people to not need to understand why entanglement works because even the physicists don't, nobody uh, understands why entanglement works.
2: I'm going to steal okay. half of this conversation from my courses. I, I swear, yeah. you know, I'll have to give you credit. Yeah, for I mean, somewhere.
0: I don't understand why magnetism works either, Right. Why why does a compass work? I mean, we can draw all kinds of symbols and, you know, and, and explain it, but that explains the part of the how, but it's again, a set of rules. It's like, well, why does metal line up? Right. Right. Why do the molecules line
2: up? Another example of, of something that we have a conception of, but most people don't really understand is electrons don't actually flow through wires. Right. they 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 jiggle in the wires, but they don't. My, the electron generated at the coal plant or the the solar panel doesn't actually go through my light bulb. Right. So it, so we have these easier conceptions that help us. And so so basically, rather than being strict, <clears throat> no no, that's not how it works. We should just accept good enough in the education, and I think that's that's a that's a good step.
0: Yeah, and I think people believing that they need to understand all of it and, and believing that they're not capable of it stops a lot of people from pursuing a lot of things. And if you yeah. can just sort of compartmentalize and say, well, I don't have to. You, there are lots of people who make contributions at lots of levels. Right. And so we just make a layer of abstraction. And if we understand the properties and can use those properties, then let's go.
2: If you think that a Tesla has a gas pedal, then you are you are accustomed to abstraction. Okay. Because they don't have a gas pedal. There's no gas in a Tesla. Right, right. Just the paradigm. It's the abstraction level. So I I love that. Uh, Cyprian, you are constantly battling with educating very smart technologists on this stuff. Uh, Do you hear a lot of uh, the stuff that you're trying to do here too? Or do you have any questions?
1: Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, I'm starting next week uh, the first uh, university course over here in Romania on quantum computing. So... Uh, I, I I already see the challenges. But the, the, the thing that, that kind of uh, uh, strikes me is that we mostly teach quantum computing today to maybe college level or even to folks who are already graduated, right? So uh, here's my question. Um, how early do you think we should start with, let's say, the basics, but obviously in a way that, that makes sense, right? Because we start teaching kids at very early ages programming today, right? And and regular computing, computer science. So, my gut feeling tells me that we should start with some of the principles, right, way earlier than college.
0: Yes, I agree, and it and it depends on what you consider the basics, right? So we, uh, so I was one of four lead writers for a workshop that developed the K twelve QIS key concepts. And so it was uh, a large group of people who came together and discussed what would even be possible and helpful to teach prior to college that would help students when they later took a course, but wouldn't be totally unreasonable to teach in high school. And, and like I said, I think there are even precursor things to that. Like each one of those key concepts can be broken down into smaller parts more basic parts and, and can be done younger. You know, we have activities that we did in a, we did, we tried them in a third grade classroom. I will say, I don't think the third graders uh, really got the technical aspect of it. So we did, you know, the measurement disturbed state by having them take jelly bellies and uh, and talk about what are different ways you could figure out what flavor it is. And then, you know, and how confident are you with those different ways? So, like, if you just look at it, you're like, well, that can be cherry or strawberry or, you know, watermelon. Right. Uh, But jelly bellies are unique in that you cannot smell anything like they all smell the same if you don't open them. So then in order to actually find out, you actually have to cut it open, which which they can definitely see does something to the jelly belly. Right. So so we had a number of activities like that. um, But I don't think. Uh, I, I do think that might have been a little young. So I think fifth or sixth grade would be a nice age to do these sort of general science concepts, but tie them to quantum so that they realize they're doing quantum. I think if we're talking about like quantum computing, they already have to be good programmers. Um, I, think, I think it's pretty sophisticated to understand the distinction of what's going to go faster in a quantum computer than a, Classical computer. And so I'm not sure. Uh, I certainly is an elective course, I think. And we're making these two week modules that a teacher could do at the very end of the school year to introduce them in different ways. Uh, we have one that's focused on Qiskit, one that's focused on uh, Python. So anyway, different ways of getting at quantum concepts. So yeah, I definitely think we can do some of the things in high school, uh, but some of it is pretty sophisticated. And so we don't want to go too far. And because the main goal is to build confidence, not intimidation.
1: I I think that... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to to follow up with that. One of the other interesting things that occurred to me is that we might also want to maybe change some of the things that we teach uh, in other disciplines. Like I think Patrick's observation about the electrons, right? I distinctly remember like how kids learn about these little uh, spheres that travel in a wire. Right. And that's the electric current and things like that. Right. So I, I think there are like, it's, it's a little bit like far reaching, right? It's not only teaching some of the fundamental concepts, but maybe helping them open their minds to some of the things that they don't need to understand why they work, but they need to understand that's the reality, right? Like, entanglement, superposition, um, alteration of state when, when measurements are made, and things like that.
0: I, I completely agree. I, I mean, I definitely think alteration of state can be put in any science class starting <clears throat> from a very young age. And I think it's important. I think that for all of science, it is important to understand that the measurement tool you choose of is very important and can affect the system. And in fact, in the math standards, sixth grade, seventh grade is when they start uh, looking at um, sort of statistical things. So I think I think doing experiments on something that has a statistical outcome, like rolling dice and flipping coins, that is a fundamental uh, aspect of quantum computing that can be done in a science class. Uh, but they're actually, so one of the things our group is doing is making a framework for K 12 QIS, like basically taking those key concepts and looking at how they could be integrated into math, chemistry, physics, and computer science. And so for each one, it's not like all of the key concepts can be applied to each class. But for example, for math, um, you know, looking at the Common Core math standards and looking at the quantum key concepts and saying, oh, which of these concepts would exercise one of the math concepts, and so then we we put those together and say, hey, here's a learning goal that integrates this physics and you yeah. know the quantum and the math, and you could exercise it in this class in this way.
2: Well, like matrix math is is one that yeah. I I don't really remember a lot of matrix math, and I took a lot of calculus and a lot of uh, math in college, but um, I've had to revisit it as I got deeper into uh, quantum. So it's, it's those kinds of things. Linear algebra isn't the course most high school seniors are going to take. They're going to take pre-calc or they're going to take calculus. Um,
0: Right. And sometimes it's taught in pre-calc, like the, just the, not all of linear algebra, but sometimes vectors and matrices are taught in a pre-calculus course. And so this would give a, an application. It's like, if you're going to cover it, when I covered it in pre-calc, we didn't apply it to anything. We just yeah. learned to matrix multiply and to simplify things.
2: Which is and, super frustrating in math. Like, why do I need yeah. to know this?
0: Right. And, and it would be so fun to actually apply it to quantum and say, hey, you've got this quantum circuit. Why don't you calculate what the result's going to be?
2: Yeah. I wonder if you can bring, you can make it a little little more enticing by bringing it into game development. I'm sure there's vector calculus and things like that and linear algebra and game oh, yeah. development. There's a it's,
0: ton in graphics. Yeah, <laughs> graphics is all linear algebra. So I, I do know of high school classes who are actually teaching linear algebra through uh, visual transformations of shapes. So that would exactly be going towards game development.
2: I, and, and I think that, was, that is a, an easier to digest um, carrot than yeah, that, hey, yeah. you might be a quantum computer programmer. You know?
0: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Unfortunately, quantum computing doesn't have the good visuals. Right. Not yet. Not yet. It
2: will eventually. Yeah. I can't wait to get my quantum graphics card. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we've talked on this show many times about how quantum computers will not do what classical computers are good at. They will do the yeah. things that quant- classical computers will never be able to do.
0: That's right. And they won't fit in your computer. No. The, the model no. is of of it in the cloud, a, a yeah. coprocessor that you would- uh,
2: a, a quantum phone would freeze your leg to death. Yeah. So- <laughs> so um you know if you think if you extend into the future enough our education system is gonna this is a transformation of the education system to accommodate a futuristic technology but that's gonna keep happening and and i don't know that we've really thought about this as a treadmill because you're you're kind of a pioneer education changes slowly in my experience it really needs to be able to change faster to accommodate this stuff when we become a spacefaring race when we we make fundam- you know we make more fundamental exploration when you need to have a phd to have a job 300 years from now because otherwise everything's ro- automated we have to evolve so are there lessons about the challenges to working with a a system that's kind of hardened over and doesn't it, that resists change
0: yeah, I, well, I think the lessons are sad, but yeah, I mean, so being part of computer science education, computer science has been trying to do this, you know, the, basically it was, it was clear in the eighties that computer science was going to become big, uh, to computer scientists, right. And so computers, I,
2: I still think, yeah, it's a exactly.
0: Fad. <laughs> so, so computer scientists have been trying to get computer science into schools since 1982 or something. And it didn't, it didn't gain steam until the dot, you know, the dot com, but, uh, boom. And by then it was, I don't want to say too late because it's never too late, but it's always following. And when you look at the kids affected, they then don't hit the workforce for another 10 years. So it was sort of, you know, 15 years too late. Um, but now at least it's happening. And so. But if we look at other technologies, data science, machine learning, and quantum computing are the three aspects of computer science that are really emerging as big. And once again, data science and machine learning are already impacting people's daily lives in a huge way before it's getting into schools in any meaningful way. So we're always behind because it's a a huge ask to have teachers retrain when they are being asked to do, you know, they're being asked to be counselors and social workers, and and their assessment, uh, you know, the the national assessment requirements keep going up. Like teachers just have to do everything, and then you're like, oh yeah, but you know, if you really cared about your kids, you'd be doing data science too. And they're just like, I'm doing a million things. Of course, I care <laughs> about my kids. I just don't have time. So we just really need to be mindful of how amazing teachers are. And the reality that everything we ask them to do is just a huge burden on them.
2: Yeah, we have to give them tools.
0: We have to give them tools. And it's almost like it has to be so important in people's lives already for them to really see the value because there are any number of things that might become important. Right. And so and until it, it actually becomes important, it's hard for them to justify
1: their time. The, the other thing that is happening and that I see is as... We get newer and 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 newer and more complex technologies. Um, the way to teach them, or the the challenge to teach them, increases. I mean, uh, if I'm looking right at uh, comparing, like teaching the basics of classical computing versus teaching the basis basics of quantum computing. I think it's, it's an order of magnitude more difficult, even if you have a good background in the field, right? So I think it's not only that we need to think of, of, okay, how do we, uh, let's say, uh, uh, increase the readiness of teachers, but I think we need to, to start also discussing you know, like new means of teaching, new modalities, new approaches. Uh, one of the things that, that, that Patrick and I, but especially Patrick, uh, pay a lot of attention to our analogies. And I think this this, this plays down to different ways of, of explaining and teaching quantum computing. So I'd really like to hear your, your opinion on to what extent do we need to, to change the way we teach things to help like increase uh, the, the possibility of, of, of folks understanding quantum
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that using analogies construct connecting what you're learning in a new field to what you already understand in either your daily life or in another field uh, is incredibly important. It's one of the fundamental uh, tenets of education is is constructivism and that even if you don't make the connection, people themselves will try to make connections. So if you can make it more explicit, then then that helps them build on existing knowledge. I think that that's only part of the key. Like I definitely, you've heard me use a lot of analogies today. So I definitely think that's important for uh, making people feel comfortable with quantum and feeling like it's not so different, uh, which they might've thought before. I think fundamentally, if you look at how people program in quantum computing versus classical computing, um, it's at the bit level. And that's like going back to the 1950s or 40s or something, right? And so, and at that time, it wasn't that accessible to, to people. And now we have Scratch where, where a line of code is like glide from here to there on the screen, right? And change your costume to, you know, so you can do an animation. So, uh, and, and in quantum computing, we don't have that yet. And so I do think that quantum computing is not ready for mainstream programming. Uh, until we figure out what are the right abstractions to get basically out of assembly language. Because although the control is more sophisticated, the data manipulation is essentially at an assembly language level. And that's just not accessible to people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. um, Well, tools are starting to come on board, but we also, uh, other than the Cubo model that D-Wave has really been exploiting quite a bit, it's hard to get people into writing something in quantum that has legs, that that does something s- s- concrete. Um, some of the research that I've done shows that Shor's algorithm may come to bear before the end of this decade. It's not assured by any means, but um, there was a study in 2015 that said it would take a billion physical qubits to implement Shor's algorithm against RSA 2048. And then four short years later, another study came out and said, oh, no, we only need 20 million. And that's a r- drastic reduction. And then universal quantum computing is the number of physical qubits is starting to go up with IBM saying they're going to have 1,000 at the end of next year. So maybe with the right breakthroughs, we might get there in less than a decade. But in the meantime, a lot of times when you're doing universal exercises, it's you're running algorithms to to show the potential. But not to do the calculation, um, I, and i I think I'm hoping that in the next five years that starts to turn the corner and we start seeing more uh, business applications.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll have Shor's algorithm in a decade um, because, like, the thousand qubits, I don't know if those are error corrected. They, I don't think they know.
2: are, and I think the, yeah, yeah. the statistics that I gave were so. If we had a if we had like six thousand error corrected. Logical qubits, I think you could probably break to RSA twenty forty eight. That's that's what I come out to the calculation. You need about three times right. the bits, the qubits as the bits. Uh, so we're a long way from that. I know that, but yeah. if the number of if the error correction gets better and the number of qubits keeps going up, we can't count it out. Is the problem because a big a big um, advancement could bring that in, and yeah. right now, I, but I don't feel comfortable telling people, oh, you've got two decades to wait. That's, not, that's right. not a good assumption either.
1: Well,
0: Shor's algorithm is sort of, is a long-term one anyway. It's, it's one of the algorithms that needs a lot of qubits. And right. so if we look at how algorithms cor- courses are taught, right? We're taught the kernels. You've got, uh, You've got divide and conquer. You've got min-max. You've got a variety of algorithms. And then you're taught how to program with them. So if I understand the algorithm, here's how I take a real application and program with it. And so we have a number of kernels. And so what we really need to figure out is how do we make that a kernel? How does someone who, uh, you know, we're instead of saying that all the programmers are gonna be algorithms developers, which they're not, they're gonna take these kernels and apply them to a real situation. And so right. we need to figure out how that works and how to teach people how to do it so that we can have a quantum algorithm, a practical quantum algorithms class instead of these theoretical algorithms courses that are training the people who are going to write the next algorithms. Right. And that, I think, would be a huge uh, advancement in quantum computing education, to figure out how, how to do it and and how to teach it.
2: I, I can't, couldn't agree more. It's, we've gone round and round about, you know, where are the algorithms? How come we're not discovering more algorithms? Well, because there's only so many problems that fit into the set.
0: Yes, Yes, yeah. and and we could do so much with the algorithms that we have if we spent the resources on figuring out how to do it and how to teach it. I think right. that at this point, we uh, you know algorithm and invention is so challenging that we should. I think we should shift some of those resources. Agreed. Okay, let's just say add resources. I don't want to argue that I'm taking resources <laughs> away from any subfield, but uh, we really need to focus on that and and make it so that we, because so many of the algorithms are supposed to be shorter term and are incredibly compelling. And so then you get a set of people, you know, how many people really get passionate about Shora's algorithm? A set of people. But there are other sets of people, yeah, which is awesome. Um, there are other sets of people who who really get passionate about the possibility that we could figure out how to do food production more, or fertilizer yes. production more I, efficiently, and drug drug design. I
2: will, I will reveal that I am a true fan of Shor's algorithm, but I suspect that Cyprien is a Grover's algorithm sympathizer, uh, because that is his actual favorite algorithm. Right, right, Cyprien. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, well, you're, you're right, <laughs> but uh, that's just my personal favorite. But speaking about the topic of algorithms. Uh, and how we're not really seeing an explosion of algorithms, I would like to open another kind of interesting topic for me is, unfortunately, like with many big discoveries in in computer science, uh, quantum computing has, or benefits, quote unquote, uh, of a lot of hype, right? And that's Kind of, I, I see it at least in the in the in the CEOs and CxOs and CIOs that I'm talking to, like they have these completely blown out of proportion expectations and perception on on quantum computing. Like they think quantum computing will break everything, will, will render everything obsolete, and so forth. So when we teach quantum computing, like I would like to 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 ask you, how do we factor in the hype? How do we make sure that uh, we are addressing the problem of hype in a way that does not affect the message that we want to 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 send to the learners, whether they are students or kids or or whatever because they will probably read the news they will probably read the 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 articles where uh, we now have quantum supremacy and everything is kind of blow out of proportion uh, and that's for me I feel it like a real challenge because when I start talking about quantum computing, and I tell them, look, this is the set of problems where this can be applied. It's almost like getting a reaction of, oh, really? We thought this is going to take the world by storm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I definitely agree that, that the media hypes everything. That's how they sell newspapers. And so I think... Uh, in this era of misinformation where people are pretty aware that misinformation is rampant, uh, I think it makes it easier to talk about the difference between what you're going to read in the newspapers and the reality. And even companies are part of this because, you know, IBM, Google, all of the companies n- not singling anyone out because uh, it is normal business practice to, uh, to advertise your things as the best possible um, view of what they are or what they could be. And so I think um, I think that is part of our job as educators to educate about more about the realities. Um, and so in my class, I actually talk a bit about the difference between the theoretical algorithms and the actual machines and how there's a gap, and sort of the difference in how theoreticians um, do analyses about when they say something's faster, what sort of assumptions are they making? And this is true in classical as well, right? Memory systems are not taken into account in, when we look at complexity theory, and and so there are lots of times where the theoretical analysis for something is very different from what someone gets on a real computer. And so I think you can have this conversation in the classical sense, and then you can say, and it's even worse in the quantum sense because we don't have the actual machine, you know, large enough machines to really do the complexity and analysis accurately. And, and we still have a difference between how theoreticians calculate these values versus uh, the practical, how they're really gonna run on the real machines. So I think you can do it in sort of nice educational ways uh, without sort of uh, being too hard on the entities involved, right? Everybody's Everybody <laughs> is operating in a reasonable fashion given their goals. And you just have to figure out who, what the goals are for everybody involved and then be a little skeptical.
2: Good advice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, wh- all, all good real world advice, right? That's not just quantum advice. No, that's,
2: that's like, that is real world advice.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Um, so this is an incredibly big topic. We're definitely going to want to talk about this some more, but we're coming down to about 30 minutes or or, or almost to a half an hour. And there's one thing I did want to get in as a quick discussion. Now, I know in the, in the dark recesses of your early career, you dealt with memory and and memristors and stuff like that and one of the topics that we've come up with uh quite often is the fact that there's really no memory in quantum computing and and there's good reasons for that but we're wondering whether you have an opinion on you know whether there will be a way i'll give you an example when i when i do quantum key distribution i have to find a way to send more than one photon i can't just send a single photon and so I know there's the no cloning, which we, talked, we mentioned before we started recording, actually. I want to give you full credit, Diana. Um, there's no cloning algorithm, which means, uh, not a uh, uh, thesis or theorem, which says I can't take a quantum state and, and clone it and replicate it. And so I, I, I don't claim to understand how the photonics of, of QKD, quantum key distribution, is doing it. But I'm pretty sure they're not sending a single photon as part of that. And so there has to be some way either through entanglement chaining or, or some other mechanism where we might be able to break this. I I have a, I have a trouble believing we're not going to be able to have memory and quantum computers in a hundred years, but I can't conceive of it right now. Is this a problem that you've thought about?
0: So, so the, the no cloning just means that I'm not going to make multiple copies of the exact same unknown state. Um, but you can still move state. So so you can st- so I think what we view memory as the quantum data that we're not operating on at the moment but we're saving for later. So so that's how I view quantum memory. As opposed to in classical memory systems, you've got a copy in in on the disk and you've got a copy in DRAM and you've got a copy in yeah. the cache and then you operate on a copy in the in the processor. We're not going to have a hierarchy Uh, That's copied, but we could have a hierarchy where things are moved, and you move it to the processing, and you might move it somewhere else. And we can use uh, EPR pairs to have movement more quickly to to get it. You know, so you can pre. This is this is work uh, that that Professor Chong did uh, twenty years ago. Was this idea that that we can use that quantum teleportation to get things from sort of deep storage. To, mm. to use by pre um, pre communicating the the pairs, and then when you want to communicate when you want to move date quantum data quickly, you just go ahead and do it. Even within the computer, you would use that. Um, so I don't think there will be no memory. Um, it just will look very different. And and to me, that's what's interesting about architecture in general is looking at what we know. From before, from classical or whatever old technologies we've been using, and looking at all the constraints and trade offs, and how that affects the design, what parts of the design are similar and what are different. So mm. I don't think it's impossible; it's just a lot different. Um, but as for getting around no cloning, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I just think that uh, we have to design algorithms assuming no cloning.
2: Well, we do. We do a lot of things that we didn't think were possible, like when I first heard of quantum computing, I don't know that it was a concept that you could, um, infer the value before you read the value. And so we've done a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of sophisticated shenanigans in quantum computing.
0: I agree. There is a little bit of sneakiness involved in error correction.
2: Yes. Yes. (laughs) and, And so I, I don't rule out that we'll get, um, additionally sneaky when it comes to getting around the no clone. i don't think we're going to have faster than light um communications because cyprian will not stop dashing that dream for me um but uh I, i think there might be other ways that we can like you know cheat the system or or skirt skirt the boundaries a little bit
1: well patrick you know as long as we need to send at least one classical bit Uh, we are not going to be able to have faster-than-life communication. What if I pay the
2: express fee? What if I pay the extra fee to send it faster? Can I just get it faster?
1: There's no Uh, account for that payment yet.
2: So what if I sent you a qubit on the other side of the universe, and and whether it reads one or zero says whether we both attack or we both don't attack? I'm still communicating. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've, I've I've digressed us way too far. So, Diana, it's been great talking to you. We still have a little bit of time. Is there anything else? Is, any works that you're that you want people to check out, or any projects specifically that we should highlight on on the page for the for the um, for the podcast?
0: Yeah, I think um, I mean if people are interested in ways to communicate quantum concepts uh, to broader audiences, to younger people, or people who have no technical background. We do have a set of zines, which are like little booklets that you can make. Um, and we have hands-on activities for, for children, middle school and, and such. Um, and we're also creating a set, a suite of five games that use quantum principles to inspire the, the mechanic, the game mechanics. And so that will be coming out for testing soon. So we're very excited about that.
2: Um, we, I would love, I love the idea of the games cause the games is, you know, that's where we're going to win the hearts and minds more than any place else. So that's a great idea.
0: Yep.
2: So, so we'll I'll
0: try just to, give you the, I'll give you the URLs.
2: And up. so you should be able to see those, uh, in the notes for the podcast. And, um, I, I, I'm going to say, we're going to probably bother you to come join us again. Cause this has been a great conversation and, uh, thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed talking to you. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank
1: you so much.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed
2: it. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.